0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 18. Today we're asking the question, do PowerPoint slides count as a safety hazard? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? Dave, I think today's question first
1: arose for me when I was doing some research into what goes wrong with risk assessments. And we floated the paper around the lab and one of the elderly professors who'd been around industry for ages suddenly said PowerPoint. And I was kind of confused, you know, what's the relationship between risk assessment and PowerPoint? And he said that... Very often people do a lot of technical work, but then they present the results not in the final report in sophisticated form. They just put up a set of PowerPoint slides with the results. And so that's the question for our episode, is what's the link between PowerPoint and safety? Or more specifically, do PowerPoint slides count as a hazard? I guess we just need to be clear as a disclaimer upfront. The PowerPoint is itself a particular branded product from Microsoft. And we're not having a go at Microsoft in this episode because this problem dates back even before Microsoft existed. Uh, so we, I'm going to try to use the name, and I hope I don't forget, using the term view graph slides just to be clear that it's not actually the particular format. It's just this idea of putting information onto uh, computer screens or projectors um, as electronic slides. D- David, I think you've got a few examples of where they've actually been directly mentioned in accident reports?
0: Yeah, I, um, I think we have mentioned this in an earlier episode, but um, Sir Haddon Cave mentions it in his report into the Nimrod accident. And if you've heard him talk or heard any of his talks uh, since he produced that report, there's a quote I put out where he said, the ubiquitous use of PowerPoint should be discouraged. It can lead the audience to watch rather than to think. And so, That's a little bit different, I think, uh, Drew, to how we sometimes think about PowerPoint slides as dumbing down information. He was talking about PowerPoint slides as, you know, not actually conveying understanding to an audience, um, just providing them with a pretty little slideshow. Yeah, so
1: I think PowerPoints get mentions for both of those reasons. And it's going to be the audience reception of PowerPoints that we're going to particularly focus on in this episode. But yeah, just to give a little list before we go into that. They get mentioned for that other purpose in the Columbia Accident Investigation. Talk about doing sort of community presentation of risk information and controls, presenting information on PowerPoint. Uh, They get mentioned in, as you said, Dave, in the Haddon Cave report. I think they get a little bit of a mention in Deepwater Horizon in a couple of the investigation reports as well. I mean, I guess it's no surprise, given that view graph slides in PowerPoint are ubiquitous, they're going to be used by any organisation that
0: has an accident. Chances
1: are some of the vital information was presented on slides at some point.
0: Yeah, we use them. I mean, they're absolutely everywhere, Drew. We work with a lot of organisations and we put everything on PowerPoint slides from risk assessment results to strategy information to induction material to 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 almost all all safety practices now in some way, shape or form in organisations are likely to be either presented on a PowerPoint slide or the results of um, of or the outcomes of the practice to be presented on PowerPoint in some kind of meeting somewhere.
1: And that's particularly where I'd like to zoom to in this episode, is this deliberate use of PowerPoint to convey safety information. I guess the sort of key example here that's gonna be relevant for most people is when you're presenting the results of an investigation or you're doing some sort of safety training, giving an induction or training about a particular hazard or a particular topic or a toolbox talk. Does it add to the communication to be using PowerPoint to do that? One question I've got for you, David, is just everyone talks about PowerPoints as being boring. (laughs) Um, We've got the whole phrase, death by PowerPoint. Um, Why is it that PowerPoint is used so much? Is it, do you think, because people think it actually spices up their talk and makes it better? Or do you think the idea is it's almost like written proof of what we talked about? So people aren't even trying to do good presentations. It's more about being covered in what they've said.
0: Yeah, Drew, I, I don't think it would be it's for that purpose of of, of assurance or, or coverage. I, I think people genuinely think it's a good way to convey information. I think they, we, we even, and, and myself, until I sort of read through some of this, I thought, well, we've got these AV facilities and computers and screens. So nowadays in organisations, when we have a meeting or we need to do a presentation, I think we all believe that gathering our thoughts putting them on slides and then talking and and showing information on slides at the same time is kind of how you present. So I don't I don't think there's anything untoward about it other than modern day organisations think that it's a good way to convey information and present information.
1: Okay so let's make that then the epi- the real question for this episode because that's what the paper is going to directly speak to is do we actually think based on the evidence that if you're going to give a talk anyway, does writing down some of the key points of what you say on a PowerPoint slide behind you help or hinder with people learning from that talk?
0: I think that's a great question, Drew. I think that's a great question. And I think we've got a really interesting paper to talk about today. Do you want to introduce a paper? Okay, so, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of a stab at it. Uh, the title is called
1: when redundant on-screen text in multimedia technical instruction can interfere with learning. Uh, Which I think is a long way of saying, does stuff on PowerPoint behind you help or not? The the authors of the paper, Slava Kalugia, Paul Chandler, and John Sweller. It's published in the journal Human Factors. It's fairly old, 2004. Um, I've done that deliberately because this is pretty much the origin of the central idea when people say that having things written on slides at the same time as speaking them is bad. This is pretty much the paper that they cite. It has been replicated since, and work done between then and now does say fundamentally the same sorts of things that get said in this paper. So don't think that you're dealing with outdated and incorrect information. I just wanted to give credit to the people who so first started seriously exploring this. John Sweller in particular, uh, he's retired now. Um, In fact, the first author of this paper is now a distinguished academic with hundreds of papers. But Sweller uh, has a massive body of work centered around looking at what creates the best conditions for learning. And that body of work is almost all experiments. So creating two conditions and saying, under which condition do people learn more?
0: So, Drew, what I what I also like about this is we we talk a bit about safety being a transdisciplinary science, and you know these are professors and academics specifically focused on education and learning and psychology. So they they wouldn't by any means consider themselves safety researchers, but uh, this is just a great example of where in safety, when we go to parent disciplines or we go to specific experts in specific fields, we can get really good insights about things that we should and shouldn't do in safety. So, do you want to talk a bit about? Um, about how much research goes on in the disciplines outside of safety that we should be looking at to inform what we do in safety?
1: Uh, There's a lot to be said there. I think sort of general principle is that for any activity that we do in safety, you can look at what someone else is doing and try to copy it, but guaranteed that somewhere there's a science for that. You want to put up a poster. There's a science about good poster design. You want to have a safety conversation. There's a science about how to have effective conversations. You want to change someone's minds or beliefs or risk perception. There's science, separate sciences for all three of those. And absolutely, you want to do something which counts as education. Oddly enough, there's a lot lot of people at universities that think an awful lot and experiment an awful lot on how to make adults learn.
0: So I think that's good, good insight, Drew, and, and specifically about this topic, PowerPoint. I think you've got your own opinions before we got to today's episode. I think you've been waiting to do this for a while and we've held off till episode 18, but uh, do you wanna just disclose your own um, thoughts and, on, on PowerPoint? Okay,
1: so, so I, I've, I've been a public speaker and debater all of my life, so I've got pretty let's say, strongly ingrained thoughts based on personal experience about what does and doesn't work when it comes to speaking. And I've never, ever been a fan of uh, particularly putting text on PowerPoint slides. Um, And what I tell all of my students and colleagues when they insist on creating shared PowerPoint packs, if the text matches what you're saying, then it's redundant. If the text doesn't exactly match exactly what you're saying at that particular time, then it's distracting. And now as much as that's my own personal opinion, it's one that is shared by lots and lots of good public speakers. Um, In fact, they put it in as one of the sort of core TED Talk principles. Uh, I think in TED Talk, it goes something like saying that the presenter is the center of the talk and anything that's a visual has to be secondary and supporting. And so you'll hardly ever see a TED Talk, certainly never any of the sort of core official ones that has words behind the speaker and there'll be pictures to support what the speaker's saying, but not words.
0: Yeah, I think for our listeners, we had a little bit of a, I don't know, a OneDrive era where I didn't know if Drew had prepared today's episode. So when I was reading the article he sent through, I kind of um, thought I was helping him out by preparing it. And there was about three things that we said exactly the same. One was about the role of Paperpoint in accidents. One was a reflection about why you never see PowerPoint slides in TED Talks. And then the third was something that we'll talk about when we get to the practical conclusions. But um, but yeah, that was interesting. I, I had that reflection when I went through the paper and went, oh, actually you don't see um, PowerPoints as we see them in organizations when you're watching, you know, a really good speaker and a, and a TED talk.
1: Now, I think there's a risk that at least one of our students may be listening to the episode. So I am going to point out that just as, you know, for safety, you might want to create an audit trail. In teaching, there are purposes other than effectiveness for putting things on slides. One of the big reasons we do it is to make sure that people who aren't physically in the classroom or who have different learning needs can get the same information. And also to make sure that if we've got a course that is split between two classes, that each class learns the same things. So there are reasons other than effectiveness for putting words on. But generally, if you ever see any of my own slides that I've got words on, it's because I've been lazy. It's because I've prepared the slide with words so that I knew what I was saying, and then I haven't had time or made the effort to go back and replace all of those words with nice visuals instead.
0: Yeah, so Drew, the introduction to this paper sort of goes deep into background literature and psychology and talks about attention and working memory and long-term memory formation, talks about cognitive load theory, dual processing models of memory, and all the way through to fairly specific and almost biological descriptions of how the brain receives auditory and visual visual and other sensory information and and makes sense of that and and comprehends and learns. So do you wanna talk a little bit about some of the theories that are relevant directly to what the experiments that we're about to talk about were were trying to test?
1: Okay, so this particular set of authors and a whole group of people who follow them have an approach to learning called cognitive load theory. And this has been criticized because it's not an accurate model of the brain works, but how the brain works, but it's one of those things that's not accurate, but may in fact be true enough for its purposes. And the idea is that when you're learning, you want to be working really hard. You want your brain to be active so that it is processing and interpreting information. It's not just being drip fed. Uh, We know that rote learning doesn't work. But on the other hand, you want your brain to be working on stuff that is really relevant to what you're learning you don't want it to have to do other tasks instead. Um, So for example, if someone has a lot of difficulty reading, then they're going to be working really hard just to spell out the words. They're not going to be working really hard to process the underlying concepts. If someone has visual difficulties, then they're going to be trying hard to see stuff instead of trying hard to learn. And there's all sorts of things that teachers can accidentally do to create this unnecessary load that distracts, uses up part of your memory and distracts from the important part of learning. So one of the things that they test a lot is, for example, if you need to look in two different places, get that information and put it together so that you're looking back and forth, that's bad. That's creating extra unnecessary work. Uh, If you've ever noticed when you've been reading and there's a footnote, that it's just harder to read something with footnotes because you've got to remember what it's there, look down, read the footnote, go back to your place previously, learning is harder and slower, and unnecessarily so. Um, So that's the sort of thing that cognitive load theory is working around. And it gives us the hypotheses that are going to be tested in this particular paper. So the hypothesis says that if we've got a person speaking and we've got text, then there are two different things to process. And those two different things mean that the person has to hold more in their brain. They might in fact learn less. The contrasting possibility is that having information presented in two different ways makes it easier. The main theory that actually promotes this we now don't believe, which is a thing called learning styles. Um, learning styles is the idea that different people learn in different ways. So you make it visual for some people, audio for other people, diagrams for other people. And we know that one isn't true, but open hypothesis about whether presenting it in two forms to the same person adds to the learning or takes away from the learning.
0: So, Drew, to, to get there, they, the researchers did three experiments, and essentially they used the same group of 25 technical apprentices they had access to. It appears from the um, acknowledgements in the paper that they had access to a group of technical apprentices at, at BHP from what we can work out um, in the early 2000s. And so they ran three separate experiments to try to refine and test these hypotheses about presenting concurrent visual and audio information versus separate um information and so how about we just talk through these three experiments in in a way that helps people kind of understand what the participants were growing through but then we can move on and talk about what what was found so in experiment one they were basically comparing these effects of simultaneously presenting the same information so what they were actually doing was they had a diagram of how to cut metal or different types of materials basically it was a three-way three-axis diagram of cutting speed revolutions per minute and material thickness and then there was a spoken explanation over the top and a set of bullet point process steps on the slide beside the diagram so people had to kind of look at the diagram and read the process for how to use the diagram and listen to a person speak about the process of how to use the diagram so they did that all at the same time for one group And then the second group, they just narrated the diagram and then showed the text separately. And then for the third group, they showed the text and narrated as well separately. They asked, um, basically, and this format's the same for the other experiments, so we only have to go through it once. Then they asked uh, the subjects on a scale of one to seven how difficult they felt the diagram was to use. And this is a bit of an assessment of, um, or a subjective assessment of mental load. So how difficult people found the task. And it was going to be interesting to the researchers if people found the task a different degree of difficulty by the different way that they presented the information and then they gave them 10 multiple they gave the participants 10 multiple choice questions to test their understanding of the diagram so drew do you want to to talk a little bit more about the experiments and the independent and dependent variables
1: okay so we've talked about experiments and how they work um in previous episodes basically we've got an independent variable which is the thing that we're changing and a dependent variable—that's the thing we're measuring. So in this case, the independent variable is what format is it in. So we get to test out the differences between uh, audio plus text at the same time, or text followed by audio. Looking at them at different times, David, maybe you could just clarify. There's actually three conditions for this one out there. There's sort of.
0: Yeah, then they eliminate—they eliminated one of the modes, which means they no longer showed the uh, the, the text at all. So the third one
1: was just audio then we're seeing sort of two things. One of them is subjectively, how hard did they think it is? And then I guess objectively, how well do they perform on the multiple choice? And they have a couple of slightly weird ways of comparing these two output variables. They use a thing called instructional efficiency, which is based around this cognitive load theory, which says that you actually combine together both the subjective feeling of how hard it is and your objective score to work out sort of how efficient the learning is.
0: Yeah, so um, I'm glad you explained that, Drew, because I was trying to work out the maths and it was um, it was a little bit complicated, but I think what they're trying to get at in education is to give people the most understanding with the least cognitive effort for their, their measure of efficiency. But but what they actually found, so in experiment one, they found that, so it took longer, instruction time took longer. If you present all of the information, diagrams, uh, written information, words at the same time, it obviously doesn't take as long. So on average it was it was taking i don't know worked out worked out maybe 20% longer to actually separate out the written text and the and the audio text but on a rating scale that changed quite significantly how people found or reported back how easy the model was to understand on their scale of 1 to 7 with 1 being easy and 7 being difficult it was 2.7 versus 1.6 so it's both pretty easy down the end of the scale but the thing that I found really interesting, Drew, was this separation of people where they'd separated out the text and the words and not provided this concurrent information via the two mediums at the same time. People scored 6.8 out of 10 versus only 5.8 out of 10 when they were given the concurrent information. So that that to me felt like quite a, I mean, it's a small sample size, but it felt like quite a difference in scores.
1: Yeah, so, so the difference between and 70% on a test can be really quite significant. For each individual, it's only basically getting one extra question right. But when you consistently get that across a group, that's a real sign that there has been a difference in learning, particularly given such a small task that they've been asked to do. That's a big difference. And so we've got some hints already from this experiment that the cognitive load theory is suggesting in this case that the worst thing to do is to give them text and information at the same and audio at the same time that putting them together actually makes learning harder rather than easier
0: yeah and what i what i like about what i also like about this paper drew is you know sometimes you've you've done that experiment and sometimes we see it in safety a little bit you've got a result or a finding and great let's go and publish that but i i do like the way that in this study they went on went on and did experiment two and three because they obviously thought well hang on a minute the groups had different time to look at the concepts because you know that I mentioned that it, they had a lot. When we separated out the information, there was a longer period of time for people to get one piece of information than the other, and they sort of thought, well, there might have been some reinforcing effect or a little bit more time that people had. So they thought, well, actually, no, we we need to repeat this experiment and experiment experiment two, and control for training time. So what they went and did, they actually created these computer animations this time um, instead of using. PowerPoints, so but but there's basically an animated PowerPoints. So this is 2004, so it's probably not that different to what we do now with our normal PowerPoint program. And training time was exactly the same. They expanded out the scale of how difficult people found to nine points instead of seven because they wanted a bit more differentiation at that lower end, and they gave people 10 multiple choice questions. They changed it from instead of cutting discs and speeds, they changed it to soldering. These were sort of mechanical um, engineering or technical trade students. But interesting, the way they actually did this to get the time, the time the same, Drew, is they had basically this diagram on the slide and then the audio explaining the diagram, and then they went to the words, which was kind of like going through the words, separating it out from the audio. And then in the other one, they had like the diagram, the words, and the audio at the same time, but then they left the information on the page for the same amount of time that the other condition was having it sequentially presented. So people got the concepts in front of them, kind of for the same amount of time. The only difference was in one group they were getting the information all together and then letting it sit there, and the other one they were getting it sequentially. And you know the findings were the, was sort of the same. They people found it cognitively well. They they assessed the task as being more difficult. They scored six point nine out of ten versus five point six out of ten. So that's even a greater um, difference when time was controlled for. And this efficiency gap was was also shown quite as quite wide. So Drew, thoughts of that? Is that so tightening up these experiments and trying to replicate these findings?
1: So what I really love is that you you were pleased that they replicated it. They still weren't satisfied. Having got exactly the result they were expecting and wanting twice in a row, they then said, Hold on, maybe there's another explanation. <laughs> maybe you the effect isn't real. Um and their new idea was, okay, maybe giving it the same amount of time isn't what matters. Maybe what we've done is we've given people two bites of the cherry. We've given them the information in one format, and then giving them it in a different format gives them basically a chance to revise. And we know that revision helps people learn. So maybe we shouldn't be blaming having them both at once yet. We need something that definitely rules out you know, locks in on this fact that it's the both at once is the bad thing, rather than some other secret advantage they're getting. Um, so experiment number three.
0: Yeah, so, so now they took out the diagrams and said, well, and, and, and the, the difficult sort of comprehension, and they said, well, is it just going, so what, what's the effect going to be when we just try to give people basic inf- information about mechanical engineering? So they isolated down about three or 400 words of, of information about general mechanical engineering type principles, and all they wanted to test was this audio and visual at the same time or, or just audio. So basically, everything else was was identical. One group just sat there with nothing in front of them and just the audio and listened. And they split up the section. Basically, they split up the text into four sections. And after each of the section, people did eight multiple choice questions. So there was a total of 32 questions. And one group just got the audio and the other group got the audio in their ears and they got the text on the screen in front of them. So the only difference there was not about time was one group was seeing text while they were listening and one group was just listening. And this was probably... The most surprising because obviously this didn't involve a lot of thinking. So both groups rated it quite easy, but there was still a difference. The group that was having to listen and read the same information at the same time found the task cognitively harder. But the results drew was you know, the group that was just listening got 25.2 out of 32, and the group that had to read and listen at the same time got 21.6 out of 32. This felt like even a greater spread of actual questions. like that's, that's, that's a big gap for people who are just sitting there listening to basic principles and versus someone having to listen and read.
1: Yes, so the, the more and more they got closer to exactly mimicking the difference between someone just standing and speaking and someone standing and speaking with text behind them, the more real and certain this effect became. So the only thing that's different here is that these are being done on computer screens in front of the participants. They're not being done with a live speaker. And there's a very good reason for that. To get a totally fair comparison, we need to have the speech happen exactly the same every time and we just can't do that with a live person. So it's not an exact same thing as speaker with slides, but I think, uh, yeah, correct me if you disagree, David, but I think this is a very fair way of testing the idea of a speaker versus speaker with slides.
0: Yeah, I think what we've spoken about a few times, Drew, that is, if there's actually a real effect there, or if there is an underlying phenomena that that the researchers are are finding, then as the studies, as we do more of the studies, and as we get more controlled with the studies and and the design of those studies, then we should see that effect continue. And and I think we've even spoken about we should see that effect materialize more and more. And that's that's definitely the case. It's 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 nice to see a paper that's actually gone. And, and run three separate experiments and refined the method for that experiment each time based on the previous findings, and, and not wanting to just claim that something had been found before they'd really honed in and, and controlled for other possible explanations for what was going on.
1: So, David, I think it's great that we have come across something where we've got information which is consistent in these experiments with what a lot of people have found in practice, I think sometimes we find ourselves criticising practices that have been around for a long time on the basis that when we study them, the efficacy of those practices disappear. In fact, what we're seeing here is that things like the principles that they put into TED Talks or into teacher training, in fact, are based on really quite solid science. That This idea of just having a single presenter presenting a clear message instead of cluttering up people's brains with different sources of information is in fact good advice Um, and it's advice that is backed up not just by this study but by other similar studies that have followed on
0: afterwards. Yeah and I think if we think about how often in safety we do things that um, are a form of education or would benefit from this type of knowledge and I mentioned earlier things like induction training. I mean how how many induction training programs do we go into now where we sit in a room and someone puts a set of powerpoints up and someone basically reads off those PowerPoints at the same time and flicks through and some people sleep and some people roll their eyes. But, you know, versus, versus a situation where a site manager or someone just stands up with nothing behind them, focuses, gets all of the attention in the room focused on them and delivers the information that they want delivered um, for people who are coming onto that site. And so, you know, there's some things, there's some common practices in safety, which we, we, we basically have PowerPoint at the center of where maybe we need to think about putting people people back at the center of.
1: I guess I should briefly throw in here that there, this is a slice of quite a wide body of research. So one of the other things that they've studied is the use of diagrams. And it definitely doesn't apply that diagrams plus audio is bad. So the idea is that if you're going to have any text, the text should actually be part of a diagram rather than separate from the diagram, even if even you're know, not, not separate in the terms of explained by a voice. So the information should already be as integrated as possible. And if that means a single person speaking, or if that means a single diagram with a small amount of text in the diagram, that's great. Um, and so this isn't like, don't use PowerPoint. This particularly applies to bullet points on PowerPoint.
0: Yeah, I think there was something in there about um, in the paper, in in the conclusion of the paper, like you said, Drew, if only putting information in the same place, if people actually have to integrate that information, then if you need to do that, actually integrating the information in the way that it's presented is really actually important. And, and otherwise, just don't present information in the same place at the same time. And so even if I think about when we present um, graphs and then explanations of graphs in our safety performance reporting and then talk about it all at the same time. We're basically doing exactly what this experiment says don't do.
1: So is this a fair time to move on to some practical takeaways, David?
0: Yeah, I think we might already be uh, be, be bordering across there. So uh, let's dive full on into, into practical takeaways, Jude. How about you start?
1: Okay, so uh, as David mentioned earlier, we ended up preparing twice and separately for this. So we have some different practical takeaways, some that uh, have ended up being exactly the same. So the first big one for me is, when we give presentations to workers or to other staff, it's worth stopping and thinking, what is the central thing we want them to learn? And why is the rest of the stuff there? Um, And that last one is a rhetorical question because all education theory says that giving people any extra work actively hurts learning. Um, And teachers have to constantly remind themselves of this. I have to do it all the time to myself. There's always something else you want to say. One extra bullet point, one extra fact, one extra example, one extra reminder. And you just need to sort of like have a big poster on your wall saying adding that extra bullet point can actually take away information. It, It deprives people of learning to say more. And if you can just sort of indoctrinate yourself with that, it really changes your whole approach to teaching and presentations. Um, If you say less, people will learn more. One that I constantly run into is I teach high school debating. And high school debating is very closely timed. There's a bell to tell you when you've got one minute left, and there's two bells to tell you when all the time's out. And constantly young debaters have to be told you, when that second bell goes, shut up and sit down. Because you're only now taking away from any score that you get. Nothing you say beyond this point is helping. You know you feel you've got to say it, but there's a time to just make yourself shut up.
0: Yeah, and I think Drew, there was a there was a takeaway in the first experiment about the pacing of learning, and I, I don't think we explained that very well. Where when we were going through the method for the first experiment, but in in the first experiment, the the people looked at the diagram and they when they clicked on the text, it basically showed the text and spoke the text at the same time. And then they basically, when they're ready for the next step, they would click on the next step and they recorded all the times people took and it, they basically concluded, even though they, they then went on to refine the experiment because they didn't want this pacing of learning to be a confounder for what they were really trying to understand about this concurrency of presenting information, they said that the pacing of learning makes a really big difference and a, a, a big impact. And it's quite different for different people. And I suppose that's the reason that we talk quite a bit about self-paced learning. And in safety with a lot of our learning processes, there's not a lot of things that we do that are that are self-paced, but actually giving people the information and letting the learner stay with it until they're ready to move on is actually a really important thing to do.
1: So there are some quite well-established practices that embody this. One of them is something that has fallen by the wayside as people have got more and more PowerPoint which is giving people handouts. Um, and the idea of a handout isn't, it something to have in front of them to distract them while you're speaking. It's a simple summary of that stuff that you might have put up on PowerPoint slides that you give people at the end as something to take away and look back and reflect on. Um, it just sort of supplements any notes they've taken themselves. It means they can pay attention to you speaking rather than trying to take notes. Um, and it means they get that benefit of the two different formats, the spoken word and the written word, but not in a way that is at the same time making it harder to learn.
0: Yeah, so there's there's a there's a general conclusion here, Drew, that that if you're putting information on a PowerPoint, which is just repeat of the things that you're saying at the exact same time, then not only are you kind of not only is it a waste of time um, or effort, but it's actually going to be watering down your message. So this um this this study actually says don't do that. Don't 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 just put words that are just points or summaries or or things for the sake of having something behind you when you're speaking, because you're actually watering down the, the retention or the actual um, what people are going to take away from from what you're saying to them. And if you want to read more about this, then you can go into a psychology journal and 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 read up about split attentions and redundancy effects. So they're saying you actually want people to have redundant cognitive load so they can be thinking and internalizing or or comprehending what you're saying rather than splitting that attention across different mediums.
1: And if you just want to trust two people who derive parts of their income from giving public talks, uh, then just trust us. Don't put words on your PowerPoint slides. It doesn't help. It'll be a better presentation without it. If you have to put words, do what I do and put bullet points and then go back and delete them all. If you need to put them on notes to remind yourself, put them on notes to remind yourself and just replace every bullet point with a Google search for an image that matches the keyword on the slide
0: yeah, maybe both of us talk a bit, Drew, but I think I think only one of us derives some income from it. I don't think I've ever been paid to talk, um, but um you know there's always a future. So, so what would we like to know maybe from our listeners, Drew?
1: Okay, so love for you to tell us your own pet hates about presentations. What do you find difficult when you have to sit through inductions or training? What do you just wish people would stop doing so that you could focus on your own learning? And on the other side when you're giving presentations when you're giving inductions toolbox talks what do you use as your sort of measures as to how well they're working do you use feedback Uh, do you have some sort of formal assessment do you get people to rate the talks do you give them a test i'm interested in what sort of methods people use mostly i'm interested because i've seen some pretty bad ones i've seen lots of organizations that put in like a test at the end of the inductions and I've seen that that actually gets applied by the person giving the induction, sitting there and telling them the answers. But I'm interested if there are some like good practices out there.
0: So Drew, this week we asked the question, do PowerPoint slides count as a safety hazard? And I guess we have to say, well, yes, they can. If uh, managing safety risk in your workplace involves conveying important information to people, and you put that information on a PowerPoint slide and speak it to people at the same time, then they are probably getting less of that information than they otherwise could. If you just said it to them or if you just gave it to them to read? Is that a fair answer to that question?
1: I think it's fair to say that if your control involves people holding information, then the text on that PowerPoint slide is directly weakening your control.
0: So there we go. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Join in our discussion on this episode on LinkedIn um, at the Safety of Work Group or send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at